0: On today's episode, From Fear to Safety, A Roadmap to Recovery. Welcome to the podcast, helping you overcome your proximal hamstring tendinopathy. This podcast is designed to help you understand this condition, learn the most effective evidence-based treatments, and of course, bust the widespread misconceptions. My name is Brodie Sharp, I'm an online physiotherapist, recreational athlete, Welcome back, everyone. We have a paper to discuss today, and I found it on Twitter. This is where I mainly keep up to date with scientific literature these days. I just have a list of people I follow on Twitter, and they just release articles and things like that. And um, a couple of weeks ago, this one came onto my feed and found it really, really helpful, um, really useful. I think I downloaded it. Where did I put it? Uh, the title is from fear to safety, a roadmap to recovery from musculoskeletal pain, and dives into pain science, dives into chronic pain, and obviously recovery, and this was right up my alley. And you well know from the past episodes that I've done, I am very intrigued on the pain science side of things, the influence. Um, I do see a lot of people with chronic pain, chronic injuries, and the complexities of pain, because we're not just dealing with an injury. We're not just dealing with a tendinopathy. We're dealing with the person as a whole and everything that goes on. Because if we just address the tendon, then we're missing a bigger part, pu- the big pieces of the puzzle. It's uh, a two thousand twenty two paper, and anyone in the list that I recognise, uh, Peter O'Sullivan um, is in the list of authors. He has a podcast called uh, Beyond Pain. Beyond Empowered Pain, sorry, Um, I think it's called Empowered Beyond Pain, and talks about low back pains a little bit, but mainly around chronic pain. Uh, Lorimer Mosley, he is a, um, these are both Australian, I think all these authors might be Australian. Um, Samantha Bunsley, um, that name rings a bell, I'm not entirely sure, I might have just come across her other work in the past, but Lorimer Mosley I've brought up in... The earlier pain science episodes, I actually played a YouTube video of him talking about pain and talking about um, someone running, steps on a branch, thinks it's a, a snake, a lot of pain. and that um, You can go back and listen to that one. Uh, but other people in this list, bunch of authors here. Uh, but anyway, top-tier people bringing out top-tier work all to do with musculoskeletal pain and recovery. And I thought to myself... You know, let me download the paper, Let me start highlighting sections that I want to talk about. and I wish you could see it in front of me. Almost every paragraph is highlighted because I read it. I'm like, oh, gold, Oh, yes, awesome. And yep, ended up almost highlighting the entire thing. But let me go through it now because um, it starts off with a bit of the, the background and then we go into um, certain sections of how we can utilize this roadmap. For recovery mainly is written for the perspective of health professionals reading this to so that health professionals can get a better understanding of how to treat their chronic pain patients but once i read this out to you you can have a lot of information about how you can help your own chronic pain but just a bit of forewarning that's the the um, lens that they're sort of writing this in So they talk about the background, they talk about the serious pathology to start with. Um, Sorry, they talk about background and uh, starts off with, once serious pathology has been excluded, a person's musculoskeletal experience is influenced by varying interplays of multidimensional factors, including physical, pathological, lifestyle, psychological, social, cultural, past history, sensory, comorbid health, genetics, sex, and life stage. Look at that massive list of all those things that actually influence pain and actually influence recovery. If you're unsure of how these can all be influenced, I recommend going back to the earlier pain science episodes. Um, But just as we dive into all of these complexities, you'll see how a lot of this does play a role. The dynamic interplay and the relative contribution from each factor is variable, interrelated, and fluctuates temporarily, making chronic pain a unique experience to each individual. Let's think about that. So each of these things, we're talking about the psychological, lifestyle, social, cultural, anatomical, physical, all of these interplay, but all of these are um They also vary. They're variable throughout the stages of your recovery. You might have certain weeks where it's more psychologically driven, more weeks where it's more physically driven, um, some days where, you know, socially it's a bit more of an impact and all of these need to, that, that sort of contributes to the fluctuation in symptoms. A lot of people say, oh, I just had pain out of the blue, don't know where it came from just On a Wednesday, just had a um, heightened pain day, and I'm not entirely sure why I can't make sense of it. And turns out they were just worried a little bit more, or they were worried about a dinner that they had to go out to, or a meeting that they had that they have to sit through the entire thing and wondering if they have to um, if they can withstand sitting for that long. Um, they might have just slept poorly or ate something that increases pain sensitivity. So, this is why these things fluctuate and why we need to. At least appreciate this dynamic interplay. The interactions influence p- tissue sensitivity and continually shape a person's perception of their pain experience. Pretty much just what I was um, highlighting there before. They say, for instance, in a recent systematic, uh, in a recent randomized controlled trial, patients received threatening and non-threatening information from MRI reports. So they kind of worked out the two groups. MRI comes back with threatening language, non-threatening language, and then they share it to that patient. And they say, compared with those who received non-threatening information, patients randomized to the threatening information were more likely to perceive a need for interventions that carry greater risk and lower benefit such as opioids, injections, and surgery, while also reporting worse pain intensity, disability, pain cognitions, mental health, and self-efficacy. This highlights how both threatening and safety messages can influence a person's pain experience and trajectory in their in the health system. The meaning of pain also influences emotional and behavioral responses, such as protection and fear avoidance. Thus, pain-related fear can be defined as a cognitive and emotional response to the evaluation of the body in its danger and needs protecting. So essentially breaking two groups, they, they randomized these two groups and just decided which ones to, like one group was going to get threatening language in their MRI reports, the other non-threatening language, or maybe just the way it was communicated. And these people can have the same amount of pain, but the outcome appears worse based on what was verbally discussed to them. And this is where all their poor outcomes sort of arise. Pain intensity increases. Their mental health negatively suffers compared to the other group. Um, Pain cognitions and all those sorts of things. And this is why it's highlighted in this paper, especially if health professionals are reading this, to make sure that the messaging that gets across, because sometimes you can say to, you can read out a a scan to someone and say, okay, it says mild arthritis in your back, um, might get worse over time, just take care of it. And that can be really perceived as threatening language for someone. It sounds quite threatening. If you had, if someone had a friend and they had, or or a relative or a parent who had Osteoarthritis in their back, and they really suffered and they got worse and worse and really deteriorated, and their lifestyle was really negatively impacted. And then you get this thing where a doctor or a health professional says, Oh, yeah, it's just mild osteoarthritis in your lower back. Um, just take care of it. Unless it w- if you don't take care of it, it's going to get worse. You know, the doctor doesn't think that's threatening language, but someone can walk away being really overwhelmed and heightened, like anxious about those messages. So we need to be very careful with how we communicate those things. They say pain-related fear, psychological distress and self-efficacy have all been shown to mediate the relationship between pain and disability. High levels of pain-related fear predict increased disability and poor outcomes in people with chronic musculoskeletal pain. Pain Pain-related fear is modifiable and targeting protective and avoidance behavior may be an opportunity to reduce disability and the burden of chronic musculoskeletal pain. We're going to dive into that a little bit more, in a bit more detail further in this um, paper, talking about how the psychological distress and the pain-related fear can influence someone's recovery and how we can actually reverse that. But it does, just for your knowledge, um, the pain- related fear is modifiable if we target certain things like some protective mechanisms like people can move slowly or guard in a particular in a particular way. And they can also have this what we call fear avoidance, not performing a certain task because they think that it's going to lead to more pain. Um, some people, stop bending over if they have pht some people stop bending over to pick something up off the floor because they believe that that's going to trigger pain and cause more damage and they believe that because maybe in the past it's happened um and that's become that's rationalized in their mind that even though they've recovered now i'm not no longer going to bend over because i don't want the pain to come back The paper continues, there is now compelling evidence that management of chronic musculoskeletal pain should integrate biological, psychological, and social perspectives. However, there is a lack of clear direction for clinicians, particularly physical therapists, on how to implement psychologically informed approaches into practice. This is me, like, I never got taught how to treat the psychological side or the social side of clients. I'm pretty much for the last 10 years been fumbling my way through it and trying to get better and better every time. I think in the last maybe 12 to 18 months, I've really scaled up in, um, not only just recognizing the importance of these things, but trying my best to communicate to clients the importance of these things, which is extremely different. Um, the social perspectives, because I've talked a lot about the biological, obviously, uh, just meaning the condition of the tendon, getting the tendon better, um, slow, heavy loading, modifying things that aggravate, all those sorts of things. The psychological side, I think I have done a bit in this podcast talking about uh, how anxious people can be, how fearful people can be, catastrophizing, uh, kinesiophobia. I've done episodes on those in the past and pretty much someone's um, ramped up perception of pain and maybe irrational, maybe over the top, maybe, um, you know, a bit overactive leads to a sensitive, a sensitized nervous system, which can then just have small little triggers required to stimulate pain. But the social side of things is really important. We're talking about like loss of identity. If you are a runner and you can't run, um, what people have to face with that if you can't run and you can't and you no longer are running with friends or your run group or you're no longer participating with your friends in races uh, if you can't sit down because you have pht and you can't go out to a movie with friends or sit down at a dinner with your family you have to stand off into the corner all of these sorts of things really really impact your mindset really impact your recovery and people start to realize, hey, instead of uh, sitting at home while my run club does their run, what about if I just go say hello and um, almost kind of volunteer to help out around the club while they go and do their run and then I'll just socialize before and afterwards. You'll realize how better you feel psychologically and how... Those, taking those actions can help your recovery, significantly help your recovery. So, th- these are what I think about when they talk about the social perspectives. The paper says the paper aims to provide physical therapists with a clinical framework that describes how cognitive functional therapy, or CFT, can be implemented through the lens of a common sense model to promote safety learning and. Uh, to promote safety learning in people with musculoskeletal pain. So the paper itself is sort of revealing this cognitive functional therapy, how you can sort of implement it with, with patients. So they talk about fear learning and people can learn fear. And there's a whole bunch of factors that do play a role in fear learning. And it starts off with societal beliefs about the body and pain. It says the body is often perceived as fragile and vulnerable to harm, and the experience of pain is interpreted as threatening and often understood as a sign of structural damage. That just makes sense. How common is that these days? You have pain, you think there's something physically wrong. You think there's structural damage. That's you know obvious, but it's obvious in the general population. That's what you think pain is, but is a lot more complex. They say as such there is a perception that the painful body, the painful body part always needs to be protected and fixed. There are examples of this in people suffering with pain in the back, knee and hip. Our own clinical studies have demonstrated that people with and without back pain as well as physical therapists who manage people with back pain show an implicit bias about the vulnerability of the back, even when they explicitly report otherwise. This suggests that as a society, we are biased towards information that supports fear beliefs about the body and pain. So we sort of naturally gravitate towards, you have pain, we need to protect the area, it needs to be fixed because it's quite vulnerable at this stage. And this creates fear. This creates the belief that pain equals harm, that recovery equals rest and protection and pain equals fear of doing more damage. And so this is what sort of creates that belief. You could say, um, I've had going back to like the start of this paragraph where this says that, you know, The body is often perceived as fragile and vulnerable. Uh, The the amount of times a client says to me, Oh, is it okay if I sit for an extra five minutes? Or is it okay if I run for an extra 30 seconds? Um, You know, these small things that the body does. I'm trying to remember a client that I had only just a few days ago where I. Specifically talked about this. Your body isn't going to fall to pieces. <laughs> the body is strong. The body is like very, very capable of doing a lot of these things. Yes, it might increase pain, but it's definitely not going to increase harm or increase uh, damage because the body is actually really strong. You, you have the perception of it being weak because it's painful, but that's why I created that podcast episode about um, you can uh, pain. Pain does not equal weakness. There's a difference between weakness and pain. You can have a really strong, painful tendon. You can also have a very weak, not painful tendon. And there's a, a, a big difference between the two. But can definitely see, like when you have a sore tendon, you're very reluctant to activate it. People feel like they've lost power. And it's just because the body itself doesn't want to recruit as many muscle fibers or put in as much power as what it was when I was operating without pain and so there's the perception of weakness but you know it takes several weeks of rest for there to have a slow deterioration of strength it doesn't just happen in the blink of an eye just because you have a flare-up over a couple of days okay so that was the societal beliefs about the body and pain now we have the other category which is the lived experience of pain related fear And they say, um, I've gone through, I've skipped a couple of paragraphs, but they say, for example, when a person believes that performing a painful activity will hurt and or cause harm to their body, avoiding or modifying that activity is common sense. Although avoidance may reduce fear and or pain in the short term, it also prevents the patient from having positive learning experiences that would disconfirm their expectations and beliefs. Failed attempts to gain control over their pain experience and its impact can reinforce fear learning and result in increased disability in the long term. Let's use sitting for PHT as an example. Some people have a flare-up of PHT or some people develop PHT over several months and sitting becomes really uncomfortable. Sitting becomes painful and they've learned that the more they sit, the more pain is created. There is that belief. There is that loop. There is that common sense. The more I sit, the worse it gets. Therefore I should sit less. Makes common sense. People modify their sitting. They sit with cushions. They have a sit-stand desk. They try to lean more towards the front of their hamstrings rather than putting pressure on their sitting bones so they can sit for longer. But while this is okay and i believe this is okay in the short term we don't want we, we want to return back to your normal sitting as soon as possible otherwise it can propel and perpetuate this downward spiral and this belief that sitting contributes to more pain and more damage and we should just avoid it altogether to the point where you know i have people with pht that say oh i'm fine now i haven't had symptoms return for you know six to 12 months, I feel better, I'm back to running and I'm happy. And I say, okay, well, how's your sitting tolerance? And they say, oh no, I don't sit anymore. No, sitting just isn't a part of my life anymore. Um, I just don't want the pain to come back. I fear the pain to come back because I'm feeling so good at the moment. I've returned to races. I'm happy. I just don't want to risk it. That is the development of a um, fear learning experience. You're sort of creating this fear, pain-related fear. And if done properly, we want to try and create a better positive experience by getting you to sit and seeing how much sitting you can tolerate and then increasing that. And then as you increase the amount of sitting and things don't get worse, it's reinforcing that positive feedback and, or that positive belief that sitting can be okay and you can return to sit, sitting for, um, for the future. And so you know insert any example of that. any running related injury um, you know fear people like when they run they return back from injury but then they avoid all kind of speed. they avoid barefoot shoes, they avoid hills, they avoid uh, longer distances. some people say they have the fear of every time I run more than 40ks per week my body breaks down like just identify yourself. Uh, What what beliefs have you created that's this pain-related fear? Okay. Um, Several factors can reinforce pain-related fear and behaviors, including a diagnostic uncertainty. So we're coming through a list of things that might um, manifest the the pain-related fear. So a diagnostic uncertainty, people being unsure of what the cause is, unsure of what the diagnosis is, that can create a lot of uncertainty and then a lot of panic. Threatening scan reports, so we've talked about that before, coupled with negative advice um, received from clinicians during healthcare encounters, conflicting advice from different clinicians. So if you go see multiple people and they have different perspectives, different diagnoses, different treatment options, then that can create a lot of uncertainty and therefore a lot of fear-based behaviours. And societal beliefs about the structured vulnerability of the body societal beliefs about the structural vulnerability. I'll repeat that. There is um, societal beliefs around like low back pain and neck pain and tendon pain and all those sorts of things. And it can really impact someone's belief on their recovery. I don't know how true this is. I've, I've heard it multiple times before now. Um, but like in Scandinavia and some European countries, whiplash just doesn't exist. It's not reported. Um, people don't get whiplash and only because it's not talked about, like they don't, it's not in their vocabulary. It's not in their general, um, day-to-day stuff. like, people don't bring it up. People don't talk about it. And it's really interesting, like here in the U S and like other developed countries, we get in a car accident and we say, oh, I hope you don't get whiplash. Oh, how's your neck feeling? Oh, you know, some professionals say, oh, it takes about two to three days for a whiplash to, um, to happen after a car accident. So expect that your neck will be stiff and sore in a, f- a few days' time. And then we get you to write questionnaires, oh, how does your neck feel, and all those sorts of things. Um, and then you develop this whiplash, you develop this neck pain. So this is like a, a social context, social environment and that sort of stuff leading to a lot of reporting of whiplash. And yeah, like I say, it's, I find it baffling that like in some countries, they just um, they just don't get neck pain after car crashes. It's not that they don't talk about it. It's not that it's underreported. It just doesn't happen. People don't manifest neck pain. So look, just like I say, I can't confirm that because I haven't seen the studies, but um, I do hear about it. And that's what I think about when I read that sentence. For some, threatening social contexts such as abusive relationships, bullying, stressful life events, and negative healthcare encounters promote a learning experience that may also play a role in facilitating feared fear learning. Okay, let's go through those. Abusive relationships, bullying, stressful life environments, and negative healthcare encounters. I think the negative healthcare encounters resonate with me a lot. I have a lot of people reaching out to me saying, I've tried five physios, four osteos, two chiros, one sports doctor. They've given up on me. Nothing is working. Um, <clears throat> those sorts of things. I have talked about on some pain podcast episodes before that a history of depression and anxiety seems to be a breeding ground for someone if they get injured to develop chronic pain. Uh, Unfortunately, I see a huge correlation with people who say, yep, they really struggled to recover. They really struggled to handle their pain, even though it's a tendinopathy, but they have a long history of anxiety, depression, um, poor upbringings, um, like just a really hard life. And, the connection is there, it says it in this paper, and it, you can understand why their default state is threatening, their default state is catastrophizing, fearing the worst, um, all those sorts of things is, yeah, like that's their clean slate, that's where they naturally gravitate towards. Unfortunately, it's really hard to turn that around because that's your... Um, that's how you operate. It's the gears that that are turning in you. It's very hard to shift a lot of beliefs. It's very hard to, to change how you think, change your default thinking state. Um, Me, I consider myself quite positive. I consider myself, um, you know, looking on the bright side for the most part. I, as we are listening to this, um, Mackenzie is five and a half weeks old and I'm starting to get a lot of low back pain. <laughs> um I have had a pretty hard well I have had episodes of pretty severe low back pain, you know, throughout my life and it it is a, an area that I have addressed and I just don't worry about it anymore. Um it does come and go and it does get quite severe. Sometimes I've been like almost almost bedridden for like 2 days because the pain's so bad, but I get strong. I don't let it worry me. If it does happen, I know what to do. I know it's going to be a couple of days and then I get better. I really don't dwell on the future um, and just gets better. And then I go 12 months, two years with it being fine. But right now it's quite a different type of pain. Um, I'm feeling still quite positive. I know I'm strong. I know that I'm doing my exercises and trying to do what I can. It, whatever exercises aren't working, I then change up and see what does work right now. I haven't found something that does work, but I've got a couple of plans coming up. So still positive, um, still doing what I can still helping out with Mackenzie. still, um, you know, doing stretches and strengthening exercises and trying to be as proactive as possible and as positive as possible. But, um, you know, some people can very easily say, Oh my god, Mackenzie's gonna get heavier, I'm gonna have to have more responsibilities, what about if I can't take care of my kid? What about if I have to rely on my partner to solely focus on that? What about if it gets so bad that I can't work and it affects my income, uh affects our family, then we have this burden. Um, you know, people can easily spiral that. That can easily be someone's default state. So just bear that in mind. Okay, I've I digress. Um, The next paragraph, we're still in this uh, subsection of fear learning. So we talked about the societal beliefs. We talked about the lived experience um, of pain-related fear. Now we have what they say, just a generalization of fear, protection, and avoidance. The inability to distinguish what is safe from what is dangerous has been proposed as a core mechanism in the generalization of protective responses that lead to disability this can result in pain being triggered by more functionally dissimilar stimuli, meaning the people who are more likely to disengage from a wider range of movements and activities. For example, when the original painful trigger is associated with bending and lifting, this may result in generalized fear, avoidance, and pain to similar, to similar and dissimilar movements. So they say to similar, in brackets, vacuuming, putting on shoes, and dissimilar, in brackets, walking, washing dishes, movements, and activities. This generalization of fear and avoidance reduces the opportunities to challenge and disconfirm a patient's fear expectations, reinforcing fear as the driver of unhelpful behavior and perpetuating disability. Sort of what I said about the sitting, Um, some people can have pain with sitting and then say, okay, I'm going to avoid sitting, but then I'm also going to avoid bending. I'm going to avoid lunging. I'm going to avoid stairs. I'm going to avoid standing or walking up hills. I'm going to avoid, you know, and they just come up with a list of things because that seems similar to them, but also something that might seem, might be dissimilar, such as walking. It doesn't seem, it doesn't look exact, anything like sitting, but it just um, not only withdraws them from the movements and activities. It withdraws them from um, being social, withdraws them from getting stronger, withdraws them from, you know, into a more psychologically fearful state. But also, as this paper says, it gets rid of any opportunity to disconfirm that feared behavior as well. It gets rid of the opportunity for you to go for a walk and feel fine, and then confirm, you know what, walking is pretty good, and then go into stairs or sit for five minutes instead of your 60-minute meeting and start to appreciate, hey, I actually can tolerate this. Hey, um, this might actually be helpful in small doses. Let me just get used to this and then reintroduce it gradually. So it's retreating to safety, well, what someone would Think is safe, but it's protecting, it's overprotecting that area. It's avoiding those things that um, take away your, your life, your, your daily tasks and re-engages that, that fear and that fear response. So let me scroll down to so that was the fear learning. Now we get into the opposite, which is safety learning. So we have gone from fear learning to safety learning. Okay, research highlights the importance of learning of a new experience of safety as the primary underlying mechanism in fear reduction. We are getting you new experiences, teaching you that they're safe, and this is the primary underlying thing that's going to help reduce your fear. We're exposing you to these sorts of um, things. Fear reduction is related to people's ability to form new safety memories that compete with the old fear memories, thus regulating their emotional and behavioural responses to the source of their fear. Like I said before, you can sit down for five minutes and say, you know what, that was actually okay. Maybe next time, maybe tomorrow, I'm going to sit for seven minutes. And then the day after that, I'm going to sit for 10 minutes. And then Once I can do that, I think that's quite functional. I can sit on a phone call for 10 minutes a couple of times a day and I know I'm going to be safe. They then go to... Oh, they refer to this thing, this figure one. Let me go to that because I had some things underlined. Uh, Maybe I'll get to that in a second. So they talk about a common sense model and safety learning. And they say take the same person with back pain who feared guarded and avoided lumbar flexion if they are reassured that spinal flexion is safe and they experience that and they experience that flexing their back in a graded and relaxed manner does not result in an increase in back pain there is incoherence between prediction and outcome subsequently learning occurs so your giving someone um, that you're challenging their belief that bending the back is painful. And you say, okay, if you think that bending your lower back is painful, um, they might think about, um, I used to do this in clinics. People didn't want to pick something up off the floor because that flexed their spine. But I then got them to um, go into side lying and flex their back and they were fine because they don't have gravity pulling on that, those muscles. And I say, look, flexing your back is fine. It's just the muscles themselves are working hard in standing. And, you know, it's quite challenging for you at the moment. And they say, okay. And I say, well, let's try it in sitting, but let's not go all the way down to the floor. Let's just bend to, um, touch just below your knees. And so they, they sort of sit there and then they bend forward, they flex their lower back and they touch the body, like just below their knees and then they come back up and I say how was that and they say it was fine so you're sort of challenging you're grading them what they can tolerate and you're sort of changing their beliefs that spinal flexion is fine and you say we can get back to flexing in standing but we just need to get the body used to it because at the moment it's right it's too challenging for it so we know that you don't need to guard we know that you know relaxing when you do bend through the spine. We know that if you over protect and over guard, that's actually quite unhelpful. So bear in mind, we can just work through the steps, get you to eventually bend and pick something up off the floor in standing. It just takes a bit of time and we just need to work through the the steps. And so um, they then say, if I scroll down, not all patients in pain are fearful. This is why I thought I'd highlight this one because um, I'm not at all trying to say that it's the fear-response relationship or it's the fear-belief that's causing pain because some people can have pain and not have fear. Like me, I'm in pain right now. I don't have any fear, but my lower back's really, really sore. Um, acknowledging that avoidance can also occur as a common sense response to an unhelpful pain Representation based on what they have been told or experienced. We propose that our framework may also be helpful for patients who report low levels of fear. So they're saying that um, it doesn't necessarily need to be from fear, it can have been because of what people have been told or experienced. So they might not have a fear of hurting their lower back, but they may have been told by a health professional just don't bend your lower back because that's really bad for the back or they might have in the past bent forward and actually experienced pain so we're looking at the experience and not just being fearful but having um, a common sense approach because it's hurt in the past but this same approach this same model that they're talking about can have uh, a positive outcome no matter if even if even in clients that it's not fear-based okay um, the therapeutic relationship. For patients in pain, the use of a communication style that is open, non-judgmental, reflective, and provides validation of a person's emotions, beliefs, and experiences is paramount to safety learning. Uh I thought I'd put this in because this is mainly for clinicians. Not a lot of clinicians are listening to this, but for you who who is listening, you want to try and find a health professional or someone just to talk to who is open, non-judgmental, reflective, and provides validation to your own emotions, beliefs, and experiences. So make sure you're listened to. Make sure that um, you're not just pushed for scans. Um, not the, they don't dive into your other things. It's not just You're not just walking in with knee pain and you're being treated like a knee pain. Um, We don't want to be treated like a tendinopathy. We want to be treated like a person who has a tendinopathy. So if you are being dismissed, if you're feeling like you're stupid based on the questions that you're asking, if you bring up something about your history that they just sort of shake off, even though it's pivotal to your recovery, um, talk to them about it or find someone else because you need to feel that you are listened to. You need to feel that all elements, socially, psychologically, physically, have been addressed. Um, And that's like on you as well to bring up these things. Um, It's on you to not just treat it like a tendon because if you come in and say, I have a tendon, fix me, don't, and someone tries to uh, ask you questions, ask questions about how you feel about the pain, What are your beliefs? What are your expectations? Uh, And you really just are quite short and dismissive and say, no, just give me shockwave or an injection or something. Um, You know, the therapist is going to respond in kind. So make sure that you are open and you are considering, you are sharing your emotions. You are sharing that it is a struggle. You are sharing that you do get anxious and worried about the future. You are, um, that it is, a struggle mentally to, it is a loss of identity for you. If you have stopped running, it is a loss of identity. If you can't sit down with your kids for dinner, um, make sure that you're raising these things because they're very valid and the therapist needs to consider these things when it comes to developing, um, a treatment plan. So that's why I thought I'd highlight that point. They then talk about exposure, which we have sort of highlighted already, but they say, Behavioral exposure specifically targets pain-related fear and avoidance by gradually exposing the person to the tasks they fear or avoid while challenging unhelpful cognitions and disconfirming threat expectations. So going back to the person with sitting or bending at their lower back, we're challenging their beliefs that it is harmful um, and, and sometimes disconfirming their expectations when Grading these sort of things, we expose people to five minutes of sitting, um, and get them to shift their beliefs, and that's why we. This that's why this exposure can be really helpful, um, and I guess I'll go through this paper. You can look up this paper, by the way, um, if you wanted to. You've got the title, "From Fear to Safety: A Roadmap to Recovery from Musculoskeletal Pain," and you can have a look at this. Um, Figure four, it's kind of just like a chart that they go through and there's a bit of a um, a table and a graphic. but essentially they've got these how-to principles for safety learning. and it's like, okay, step one is screen. So we want to screen for the contributing factors. Uh, so we're wanting to, you know do some questionnaires, talk to the patient about certain like all the different factors that influence pain and influence someone's, Perception of pain and the fear avoidance and um, the learned pain and all that sort of stuff. We want to identify all that by screening. And number two is interviewing. So, this is screening is more like, you know, your questionnaires, but interviewing is more ask the patient, ask the patient about their concerns, their worries, their fears, their goals. Make sure you listened to them. Make sure that they have, uh, make sure that you address what their previous experience has been through the healthcare system, their past trauma, their general health, their lifestyle, social context, um, their physical activity, and all those sorts of things. You want to look at what they deem the five domains of their representation. So their identity, the cause, the consequences, the timeline, and the fifth one is control or con- uh, curability. So identity, uh, you know, are you a runner? Uh, what, what, Who do you think you are like when it comes to this recovery? Where do you fit in this whole um, puzzle? The cause, what do you think the cause is? What do you think is contributing to it? Uh, The consequences, do you think you need surgery or do you think you're going to recover quite well? What do you think the timeline or recovery timeframes are? Uh, Do you think you can recover at all? What's the curability? Do you feel in control of your ability to rehab yourself or have a team around you to overcome this injury? all these sorts of things we want to uh, factor in, um, and identify any fear, any avoidance, anything that you're, um, yeah, any task that you're avoiding because of pain. And I, I read this out because this is for a therapist, but you can do this yourself. Maybe you haven't really consciously thought about it, but you are avoiding things. You are moving differently or behaving in certain ways. Um, one sec, gonna take a drink. The next one is examine. So, Uh, we want to do these behavioral experiences and do things like facilitate body relaxation, teaching you awareness and control, reassuring you, doing graded exposure. This is all a part of the examine portion. Expose exposure with control. So we're through repetition over time, establishing some coherence and reinforcing safety. Um, We want people to make sense of their pain. Essentially, listening to this podcast hopefully can make sense of some people's pain, dispelling some of the myths. And um, if the patient's open to hearing that, provide relevant resources, provide patient stories. Um, some some of these success stories have been pretty good at providing evidence or providing um, or dispelling myths, you could say. So um, that's sort of like the the overall how-to principles. I just quickly glanced over that, but you get the idea. Okay. Where am I up to? Um, we've gone through exposure. Um, we continue with exposure by saying this includes the promotion of body relaxation prior to exposure. So we're really calming you down. Um, not ramping you up because if you say, if you are in a real fear of sitting down and 10 seconds of sitting down, um, might trigger pain, and you're really worked up about it. You're really anxious, hyper vigilant, and a therapist says just sit down and see how you go. Like you're really going to be worked up, but reassurance, relaxation, telling people it's normal. You know the tendon's going to be fine, your body's going to be fine. Let's just sit in this um, comfy chair that I know is higher than your hips. Uh, higher than your hips will be higher than your knees, so it will take pressure in different areas. Trust me, you're going to be totally fine. Um, I'm here with you. And like, just calm them down. Um, The reduction of protective behaviors. So people get really tense. People hold their breath. People um, guard. People move differently, sit differently. If we try to really facilitate body awareness, facilitate control, facilitate relaxation, it enables the person to experience um, it in a non-protective way. The paper says, for instance, lifting with a, in a relaxed manner and modifying how the person physically performs the task without unhelpful, without unhelpful protective responses, such as breath-holding, bracing, avoiding spinal flexion, may result in a positive experience that promotes safety learning. Essentially, just getting people to, to do the task in a relaxed manner can really help. Um, Kieran O'Sullivan Kieran O'Sullivan. I'm getting like no, that's, um, oh my God, uh, Peter O'Sullivan. Peter O'Sullivan, one of the authors here. He has the the Beyond Pain podcast and really talks about people flexing the back is totally fine. Just relax, bend forward. Um, you're not doing any structural damage. Does a really good job of allaying a lot of those fears for people. Okay, the paper, exposure that promotes control of emotional and behavioral responses to pain provides a potential pathway to return a person to their valued activities without pain, escalation and associated distress. So picking something, it might be running. Some people are like, I have some clients who have multiple injuries They get flared up as soon as they start running and they'll run for, they can walk for 30 minutes, but then they run for five lots of 15 seconds and these injuries start flaring up. Makes no sense whatsoever. But maybe, just maybe, they're really anxious. They're really fearful. They're wound up, braced, gritting their teeth, fearful about running and then pain manifests. Makes sense. If you're really wound up Um, and it's all about relaxation, it's all about trying to reintegrate a helpful movement uh, safe movement. And once someone's calmed down and does that, and they feel fine, conf- reconfirms their belief that, well, cha- shifts their belief that pain with or running can be safe. And then we move forward from there. Okay. Uh, making sense of pain. A, pa- a key part of this model. They say, the process of making sense of pain is reflective and uses a person's own story combined with their experiences during behavioral exposure to gain a new understanding of their pain and build self-efficacy to achieve their goals. So we are combining the person's own story with their, ex- their experiences during the behavioral exposure. We're trying to sort of um, recalibrate their threat levels. Based on the common sense model, a coherent representation includes diagnostic certainty of a, of a bio-psy- biopsychosocial perspective, identity, in brackets, identity, that can explain a person's symptoms in a meaningful way, in brackets, the cause, replaces beliefs about pain and their damaging or disabling effects, in brackets, the consequences, and provides strategies for controlling symptoms and emotions in a manner that re-engages them with, with living, and then in brackets lifetime, life uh, timeline and control. So going through those five domains that I talked about before: identity, cause, consequences, and lifeline. T- why can't I say that word? Timeline and control. Okay, this process disconfirms previously held unhelpful beliefs, and allows a person to reconceptualize and understand their pain symptoms and emotional and behavioral responses to pain in a new way through the biopsychosocial lens with the aim to gain self-efficacy. So we're addressing, we're reconceptualizing and understanding the biopsychosocial lens. We're bringing in factors such as your identity, we're um, identifying your beliefs and potentially changing and shifting those beliefs and shifting your symptoms and emotions to give you a better understanding of pain in a biopsychosocial manner to then help give you the tools for success. Lastly, we have the journey to recovery. And it says, although for some, this process may occur in a few weeks, for others, it may take longer, and they put in brackets three to six months. This is, I thought it'd be interesting or important to put that in there just because, you know, sometimes it can be really quick. Other times, it might not be. We're shifting how people think, and that, you know, depends how interwoven those relationships are. It can be, I've seen people get better in two weeks. I had, I interviewed Maddie, who had bilateral chronic. Chronic, chronic plantar fasciitis, and got better really quickly. Or started to see a, a shift in her um, recovery in a, in a really quick time frame, just because of recognizing how pain is biopsychosocial, and re really addressed the psychosocial side of things, and saw that improvement. Among those who did not achieve pain, oh, they talked about a study that was um, included in this paper. Among those who did not achieve pain control, some reported poorer outcomes at follow-up, whereas others reported that accepting the unpredictability and uncontrollability of pain or adopting a new and more positive mindset about the causes and consequences of pain enabled them to control their worry and engaging in valued activities. So they're talking about uh, the follow-up of some people who went through this CFT uh, intervention, um, a lot of people got better. Some people didn't get better, but some people's mindset shifted when they didn't get better. They say, okay, I didn't really improve, but you know this thing's quite unpredictable, uncontrollable. I understand that. Um, and... They go away, they're approaching it with more of a positive mindset. And I guarantee those people are going to get better in that six months rather than a couple of weeks. They'll get better in the long term because their outcome, their outlook is a lot more positive. So bear that in mind as well. Even if you're not noticing improvement, it's having those uh, changing, shifting that mindset. I'm in pain right now, but I have a positive mindset about the future. And so Um, Definitely something to think of. And lastly, I know we said lastly because that was the last part of the chapter, but really lastly, we have the summary, which says, the clinically useful framework we propose that experiential learning combined with sense-making enables people with musculoskeletal pain to gain control over pain and its impact by disrupting unhelpful cognitive relationships and behavioral and emotional responses to pain leading them to a journey to recovery. This clinical framework endorses best practice recommendations. Although low back pain was used in as an example in this paper, we consider that this framework is applicable across a range of musculoskeletal pain conditions. Okay, <laughs> this paper you can look up. Um, it didn't take me long to find a PDF of it, so feel free to type in the... Um, the search the, the title of the paper in Google Scholar or somewhere and you can have a look through it if you are interested. I've already sent this to a, a few patients to have a look at because it might appear relevant to them. Um, you know, I think I, I want to do as many of these topics as possible because I have seen how chronic pain can get. I have seen people follow the principles of this podcast in a uh biological sense and say, I just need to get stronger. I need to do these exercises and, you know, it doesn't move the needle. And when I chat with them, you can see there's a lot of psychological stuff going on, a lot of fear, a lot of unhelpful beliefs. And so this is really important. Um, This is an episode of self-reflection and hopefully just listening to this, you might listen to this a couple of times and read the paper and have some more, um, self-evaluation and come up with some strategies, come up with some things to help your recovery. So I hope, I know this will help more than one person. And if you really apply this stuff and really dive deep into it, you're gonna have the maximal benefit. Hope you enjoy. We'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks once again for listening and taking control of your rehab. If you are a runner and love learning through the podcast format, then go ahead and check out the Run Smarter Podcast hosted by me. I'll include the link along with all the other links mentioned today in the show notes. So open up your device, click on the show description, and all the links will be there waiting for you. Congratulations on paving your way forward towards an empowering, pain-free future. And remember, knowledge is power.